Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, glad you are here to join us today on the Good Life Podcast. I am Matt Carpenter, and I'm grateful today to have Dr. Michael Connolly. Dr. Connolly is a history professor at Purdue University Northwest in Indiana. He has a Ph.D., from the Catholic University of America, and he specializes in some of the history of New England. He has written one book called Capitalism, Politics, and Railroads in Jacksonian New England, and he's written for several other historical publications. But Dr. Connolly, we are very grateful to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure. Today, I wanted to talk about a topic that's not often discussed in the United States, at least. And Dr. Connolly has written several articles at the American Conservative on this topic, and that is the topic of Toryism. Now, for some Americans, when they hear that, especially for you know us in the South, that gives an immediate projection of the loyalists and, you know, the American loyalists in the, the war for independence. So, so there is some natural aversion to that. But just for starters, tell us who are the Tories? What is a Tory? And I know that you, one could write books on, on that. So, so just, you know, tell, tell us a brief introduction to Toryism. One quick correction: the essays are in imaginative conservative, not American conservative. I want to oh, sure excuse me. Th- That's thank fine. Thank you I for that. We want to send people in the right direction to. Uh, yes, and and, and and I I will that I do appreciate that. I, I will put a link to all those articles, uh, okay. you know, in or on the podcast page. So I do appreciate that correction. So Toryism. Uh, It's a slippery term depending on how you want to date it, its beginning. But in many ways, it dates from the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688, where you have the uh, the abdication or the deposition of King James II off of the British throne. And people's attitude towards 1688, whether you were in favor of the removal of James or uh, opposed to it, it, it divided British politics from from that moment on. And generally speaking, sort of put it in simple terms, those who were more supportive of James II and the Stuarts claim to the throne were eventually called Tories and took on that label. It originally began as sort of a pejorative, which often happens. You know, labels of groups or political parties, they begin as, uh, you know, some cruel term that's used to refer to them. And then the people to whom the term is applied eventually out of spite take it on and say, yes, you're right, that's exactly what I am. And so Tory was a Gaelic term, which meant kind of like Irish bandits, Irish <laughs> robbers. Uh, and with a last name like Connolly, I, I sort of appreciate that. Uh, yes. that but those who were supportive of James took on this label of Tory and those who were in favor of the 
glorious revolution. Of course, Tories would never call it glorious. They call it the inglorious revolution. Right. Those who were opposed to James began to take on eventually the name of uh, Whig. And that's in many ways the origin of the British, uh, British political party system. And even today, I mean, we still call the British Conservative Party by that term, but sort of informally, they're still known as the uh, as the Tory party. And you're right. In the revolution, still to this day, you hear the, the two sides sort of divided up between patriots on one side and Tories on the other. And Tory is just another term for loyalist. But in many ways, that's incorrect. I'm not the first person to say this. Uh, other historians have remarked that you didn't have a battle between Whigs and Tories or Patriots and Tories. What you had was a battle between revolutionary Whigs and loyalist Whigs. And there weren't that many Tories who were hanging around the United States in the 1760s and 1770s. But anyhow, the origin of it really dates to around the time of the Glorious Revolution of 1688-89. Okay. So... From that, can, is it possible to, to trace, and I, I don't want to dig too far in this. This is somewhat maybe historian inside baseball, so I don't want to spend too much time. But I know, you know in that same century, 1688, but prior to it, you had the English Civil War mm-hmm. between the Puritans and the Cavaliers. So was that in some ways, and I know this is a debated topic, but is that a precursor to what we see later on in 1688, you know, at least what is your perspective, you know, with, with the Puritans representing the, the Whig side and, and the, the Cavaliers representing the Tory side? Yeah, that's not an, that's not an unfair way to look at it. You can see sort of uh, precursors to the division that comes after 1688 in the divisions that come between the English Civil War in the 1640s, which of course leads to the execution of Charles I. Um, and then through the interregnum into Charles II, you can see those divisions between those who were much more supportive of the claims of the Stuarts to the throne and those who were much more skeptical, not only of the claims, but of, uh, of Stuart policies, those in the early part, of course, following the Puritans and Cromwellians, and then uh, later on opposition to, in particular, James II, right? Things come to a head at that point. Right, uh, but, the, but the divisions that you see, sure, you can see echoes of it earlier on. Sure, I know there was a book several years ago that came out by, and I'll probably miss his name, but Steve Pincus, P-I-N-C-U-S, called "1688: The First Modern Revolution." Have, have, are you familiar with that? I am generally. I looked at it uh, for the project that I'm working on now, the book that I'm hoping to see. Uh, it will be coming out in the fall. I did refer to it a little bit there. He speaks quite a bit, if I recall correctly, about James II. Right. Um, for example, again, you don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but saying things like James II wanted to um, emulate the French in some ways and create a, a French-style centralized government along Catholic continental models. And, of course, this is going to set everybody alight. Sure. Uh, and lead to lead to at least some of the energy behind his deposition in, in 1688, 89. Okay. Well, I, it's been years since I referred to it, but I just, that was the first exposure I ever had as a high school teacher to any position that cast 1688 as a 
in any way a negative thing. Now, again, it depends on your perspective. Some people say that, that, that revolutions are not negative, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that. So would you, when you have the Tories who, who come along after 1688 who are more uh, loyal to the crown, so how would you then contrast right now you have a, you have a Tory party in mm-hmm. Britain one can argue whether or not they actually reflect true Tory sentiments. But so how would you contrast, though, for Americans, you, you're in America, you, you, you live here, mm-hmm. the modern conservatism with what it means to be a Tory, not in the ongoing British political party sense, but just in, in the older Tory sense. Right. That's been kind of the one of the themes that I've been sort of drumming on in some of the uh, in some of the articles is to draw some of uh, some of that that con- uh, contrast not in both Britain and America in some ways that yes Toryism is often I mean it's a byword today for conservatism and it was at that time seen as being a more conservative philosophy way of life or attitude of the mind or something like that as well but the conservatism that we see often talked about today that we're just familiar with in a political sense, contrasting it with Toryism in the 18th and particular 19th centuries is a completely different sensibility. Uh, the, particularly in the United States, that conservatism in the United States is at its heart much more liberal in the way that it speaks about things, how it thinks about things, much more liberal in its, uh, in its uh, philosophy, if you will, because if you listen to conservatives today, many will use terms like individualism and they'll base decisions on the, the power of individuals, the freedom of individuals to do what they wish, free from government control. You know, the foundation of everything is not society. Uh, the foundation of everything is individuals who then create social institutions who then create governments, the state, and so on. It's a, it's a conservative speak in very, in contemporary American conservative, conservative speak in very liberal language, as opposed to Tories, of which you can find American Tories. It's one of, again, that's one of my projects is to go and identify these people. Mm-hmm. Because I want uh, to bring to, to life a sort of counter tradition, if you will, we can get into this, but this comes into a very famous author named Lewis Hartz in the 1950s, speaking of right. liberalism in America, and that's sort of animating me too. But Tories have a different sensibility. Uh, I would argue much more Aristotelian, Thomistic, if you will, and that is the foundation of things is society, social institutions, famil- uh, families, so uh, familial institutions, church, and what have you. And the identity of individuals, the context of individuals, the education of individuals, what have you, comes from those things. So it's much more of a hate, I kind of hesitate to use the term because it can be taken the wrong way, but a much more communitarian sensibility as opposed to an individualist sensibility. And in the United States today, you really have two sets of, in some ways, two sets of liberals arguing with each other, left liberals and right liberals, and Tories don't fit into into that model. They consider and understand life very differently. 
So some of that, it sounds like, would have it has to do with, and I, I was thinking we'd get into this later, but it's a good time to talk about it now, is the view of history that those who are liberal or Whig, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know that you, you've written about in the imaginative conservative, uh, you've written about Herbert Butterfield's book, The mm-hmm. Whig View of History, which I remember reading probably three years ago for the first time, although I'd seen it referred to quite a bit. And, you know, you offer some really good critiques, but, you know, there, there's the Whig view and then there is the, the Tory view. I can't, maybe there's a better way to say it. I can't think of it though, when it comes to history. So, so help us understand, you know, for the average layman, what is the difference between a Whig view of history and a Tory view? So the way I describe this, you'll, you'll immediately recognize it because it's still current today. The way people understand history and the Whig interpretation of history, it's a clumsy term. It's very academic. And people say, what are you talking about? But once you get into the details, people will, well, that's right. I recognize that type of thing. So Herbert Butterfield, 1931, wrote the tiny little book. It's a slender volume. I don't even know if it makes 100 pages. Still in print today, called The Whig Interpretation of History. And it was something of a complaint. And in this, Butterfield is saying there was this group of historians that in the 19th century in particular, but they're still around today, their legacy, their way of looking at things. But what they did was write about history, create this narrative where all history ends up with them. It ends with them. It complements them. All of history essentially is progressive. And I don't mean that in a political sense. I mean that in a quite a literal right. lowercase p sense. Progressive in that it it it. it it progresses to them right? in their view of the world and very particular views on liberty, equality, fraternity, democracy, all those type of things. And it ends with them. And by doing so, it's, it's them lacking humility. And this is Butterfield talking, lacking humility, saying all history ends with me. I'm up on this promenade. I'm looking over all of history. It was this uh, particular way of creating a narrative and looking at history that said this process was inevitable. There's nothing you can do about it. History is rising to me, the Whig. It's not rising to you, the Tory. In fact, you're fighting against it. You're sort of delaying the inevitable progress that we're experiencing. Um, And because of that, it was kind of this type of history is almost a type of psychological warfare. Look, it's inevitable. There's nothing you can do about it. Just don't stop fighting what's inevitable. And if you get that message all the time, finally you say, well, okay, so I'm just, I'm not going to fight it. I'm not, it's going to happen anyway. It's inevitable. Uh, Whig history was also, as Butterfield spoke of it, extremely simplistic. It was this sort of uh, very simplistic message of liberty and equality and so on, rising to this point, any sort of contradiction to it, of course, history is very complex, and there's lots of details and complexities and contradictions, those were left to the wayside. And so history, as the Whigs described it, was this very sort of simple narrative of progress that was leading to Whigs slash liberals in their ideas. History was moving away from those who would oppose it, like Tories or something like that. Um, And by doing so, of course, it delegitimizes opposition. Because if you capture the historical narrative like that, then you're the one writing popular history books as the people like, you know, Thomas Babington, Macaulay and Lord Acton and others are doing. 
you capture the historical sensibility and understanding of a people, it's very difficult to dislodge that. And when you start challenging it and making claims against it, it's very difficult to do because you've been delegitimized. Your your counter narrative has been delegitimized by the history that has been that has been created. So Butterfield complained about this and said, "This is an extremely simple progressive story of history. The ultimate point of which is to flatter the present. You are better than the people and institutions and things that happened in the past." Right, history is the story of progress from authority to greater liberty, and things are getting better all the time. And sure, there's a hiccup here and there by people who won't get on board, but it's going in this direction, and there's nothing you can do about it. So, when you consider, though, the, and I'm not saying that that only wicked people have that view. So that, that's not what I'm about to say. All right, right. but. If you consider the evil that has been done in the name of helping others get on board, for lack of a better way to say, you know, Russo, when he talks about the general will, talks mm-hmm. about those who will not, you know, abide with the general will and, and how they need to be helped in, you know, in some of the measures that he talks about how the, how. Any though any any who stand to thwart the general will need to be uh, I can't remember the, the term that he uses, but essentially they need to be right. brought to to bear. They need to be made. They need to be. I'll put this in the creepiest authoritarian language that I can. But they need <laughs> to be made to understood that they are uh, laboring under a misapprehension about that. That's a that's a wonderful way to say it, and I, I, that's. You you betray your European your family's European roots when you say you it go. that way, but because it, it it almost sounds you know believable when you put it like that. <laughs> I've but, convinced you. you know, that's what it is. But but you know this was this was the philosophy of the French, the French Revolution. I mean, and and you can so without me going into all the different revolutions, this is what they you know the revolutionaries argued in every case right. that we are moving towards greater freedom now whether or not that freedom is actually accomplished in the end is a totally another other question mm-hmm. but the argument for movement is the argument of we're going from you know sec in a secular way of speaking glory to glory right i mean history is only moving in one direction Right. That's the way that it's um, that, that's the way that it goes. It, the, the importance of this and the importance of and this, I don't, he doesn't emphasize this enough. Butterfield, I mean, the importance of this is to demonstrate that historiography is important. Yes. Right. Historiography, meaning the history of history, what historians have said over time. And if you can capture the historiography and come up with a compelling uh, narrative that in a, in a total way explains why history has occurred, how it's gotten to this point. And if you can do this in a, a very understandable and simple way, it is extremely powerful. And this is what I mean in, in the essay that I wrote in historiography, that it, in its power, it can delegitimize opposition to it. Right. And that's, 
you know, that can be dangerous. It, it, it can be. The, the reactions to that can be from the very subtle to the, to the diabolical uh, in some ways. Yes. And, and in both, both world wars, I know from reading the literature of and the propaganda, not just from politicians, but even, sadly, from the pulpits of many churches, both the Allied and, you know, in the, the central powers in World War One, then the Axis mm-hmm. in World War Two, both both sides adopted a, a, a Whiggish view, a, a, a sense of our we are going to triumph because we are on the right side of history. You know, and, and, it's and powerful. The, yes. Right. Very, yes. very powerful. And we're dealing with that right now. I mean, I can't think of how many times I've heard people say that, you know, we are on, we being those who hold to traditional perspectives on morality and, and theology and things, we're on the the wrong side of history. Right. So, so it's, but to contrast that though, there is this Tory view, which granted is not nearly as alluring as the progressive view of history, but, but takes a lot more into account. So so tell us what is the Tory view? And if there's a better name for it, feel free to, you know, to say what that is, but what is the Tory view of history? No. And I use the word uh, Tory interpretation of history as a direct contrast, a contrast to it. And by the way, the, there was such a thing, as a Tory interpretation of history. So if you go back and you look in the years uh, directly after 1688, where you have British commentators and historians trying to deal with the reality of what just happened and trying to, frankly, trying to capture the narrative to describe what has just happened in the, the glorious revolution of 1688, you see a Tory response to this. Those who aren't all that keen on what happened in 1688 and 89 and are fashioning a response to an emerging Whig interpretation, which is, as I just described it, um, at least Butterfield to write his book in, 19, in 1931. The Tory interpretation is really, the way I always describe it is it comes down to three things. Here's me simplifying it. I'm, I'm hopefully not simplifying it too much, but three things to keep in mind. Tories when they um, look at history, say that history is quite complex. It's complex. It's chaotic, sometimes contradictory. It's very elaborate. And that a Tory historian practicing their craft will, will communicate that, that it is messy. Doing history, understanding history is messy. It's not this sort of simplified story of of black hats and white hats as if it's a Western. It's much more complex and messy than, uh, than that. So elaboration right. is the first characteristic uh, of Tory history. Uh, the second is etymology. I always call it the three E's. I tell my students this. There's the three E's to keep in mind. The second being etymology. The, the meaning of words will change over time. And so a, a word like know, liberty or equality or something like that, when it's spoken in 1688 or 1720 or whatever, it's not going to mean the same thing by 1950 or 2022. 
it's going to shift over time. And if you bring contemporary understandings, etymological understanding of words from the date and time where you're writing and project them back on the past, you're going to misunderstand and essentially misunderstand a lot of the messiness and the, the, the chaos that we were just uh, that we were just talking about. You'll be projecting the meaning of words on the past. Mm, right. And missing much of the much of the meaning, uh, meaning that's there. And the second, the third, rather, uh, of the three E's is uh, empathy. And that is the even if you fundamentally disagree going in with the person, the event, whatever it is you're looking at, it's always best to proceed with an empathetic point of view, sort of living vicariously through the person. Again, not because you agree, but because what you want to do is get in their shoes, get inside their head. Why are they doing, thinking, saying these particular things? Don't start from a point of view of animosity, because that will warp things a little bit too. Start from a point of view of uh, of empathy, and you know, Tor- and you can sort of get it from these three E's. Tories tended to like to to write their history in the form of biography, not in sort of sweeping narratives that are describing particular political values or particular philosophies, right? A bloodless history, as a professor of mine used to say, you don't you don't want to write bloodless history where it's all just a history of movements. Right. Tories tend to, and this is a reflection of their philosophy, you know, seeing families, seeing people coming from a context, you know, institutions and the like. They want to talk about people, individual people, the lives they lived in, the context that they came out of, communities, what have you. And so that biography, in many ways, is a, a reflection of the Tory interpretation of history, and using those, and using those three E's, and it is very different from the, the, uh, the Whig interpretation, uh, Whig interpretation of history. It's just so easy to say, and lacking completely in humility, by the way, that say all history le- leads to me. Right. You must feel really wonderful about yourself if you <laughs> all history leads to you. And Tories will reply and say, you know what, it's a little bit more complex than that. Right. And and, and I, I remember one of my students years ago, at one point, he said, Mr. Carpenter, why, when every time we ask a question, do you say it's complicated? <laughs> right. and, and it's not that, you know, I, when, whenever they would have a history question, I would say, you can't merely adopt a, 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 they're always wrong and we're always right perspective. They have reasons for doing what they're doing. So, and, and, and even now I'm not a professor certainly, so I can say this uh, and you may disagree and, and, and that's fine, but it, the, the general idea even of a textbook, having a textbook that has that, that lumps history, I mean, chronologically, that's understandable, but based on movements, based on, you know, patterns of behavior, you know, or, you know, po- political ideologies, that just seems like a more... A, a, a Whiggish view of his pre- presenting history than actually just using primary sources and biography and speeches. Uh, you know that again. That that 
it's, it's an observation. It's not something I've developed thoroughly, but, but it just, it seems like textbooks, at least the modern ones strive for that bloodlessness to a degree. So anyway, that's just, I mean, I, I would say that they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, you can talk about romanticism. You can talk about the age of nationalism. Right. Within that, I mean, because there are such things. I mean, we, we sure. use periodization all the time. Uh, and I don't have a problem with that. That's a, it's, a way to, it's a way to interpret and understand history. But they're not mutually exclusive. You can have a discussion of romanticism and nationalism, what have you. And have within that a discussion of the lives of people and the right. the, the the world that they the, the world that they experience. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Okay. Um, the some of the problems I have with textbooks is that they they pretty much have this. They say the same thing. I mean, it's just essentially a, a very similar narrative. The difference is one of shade rather than of type. Um, yes. And there are, you know, the good ones and bad ones, uh, but uh, that's generally my problem with them. It's just I feel like I'm reading variations on a theme. They really don't tend to tell you something remarkably different between them. So after the Glorious Revolution, we have, you know, new monarchs who arrive and then eventually the Hanoverians come and so, so they continue and then eventually the United States or the the colonies break away. What happened to Toryism after in America or in North America, not just the United States, but in North America after the war for independence? Well, many people, I mean, as I mentioned before, uh, and I'm inclined to agree with this, that the American revolution the majority of it were of people who were between liberals. It was between revolutionary liberals and a lot of loyalist liberals. Now, that's not to say there weren't Tories. Um, many Tories, uh, people who uh, had this particular philosophy of attitude of mind that I'm talking of, some stayed, but many left, right? Many will go to Canada. And the, the legacy of uh, American loyalists going to Canada has a major impact in the shaping of the political culture of Canada. Uh, a much stronger... Tory tradition uh, in Canada than is certainly emphasized in the United States. It's not that there isn't one in the United States, but it's underemphasized. And it's much more in place um, in a place uh, in a a country like Canada. Uh, So in the years after the revolution, you do see very slowly the development or maybe a redevelopment of a Tory tradition or a Tory sensibility uh, in the United States, but it comes with distance from the revolution when you begin to see institutions having some age on them, when you begin to see the country having some age on it, when you begin to see the original founding generation uh, die and you have a new generation uh, rising, you begin to see more of a uh, more of a Tory a sensibility rising among some American politicians, American writers, Along the lines that I spoke of, uh, I spoke of before. Not an ideal. Toryism isn't ideological. It's not a even something so strict as a as a political philosophy, but it's a sort of attitude of mind about the about the imperfectibility of human beings. Right? They're, you're not dealing with a perfectible humanity uh, or anything like that. Uh, 
an appreciation of the necessity of strong, uh, lasting institutions that help frame life, the, the danger of class consciousness uh, and how uh, heightened class, class consciousness can actually erode community and could have a role in ripping down the uh, aforementioned institutions. You begin to see this starting to develop the further away you start to get from, from the revolution uh, in the antebellum period, and then the, really throughout the 19th century, which is where I feel most comfortable, since that's where I do most of my writing. That's when you see the Richard Henry Dana, Richard Henry Dana seniors beginning to uh, complain, you know, write and say that I don't like the way things are going here. This this new Jacksonian era has a different ethos. I think it's a destructive ethos. And he's just one example. Uh, there are others, you know, Ralph Adams Cram, the well-known architect at the end of the century. Uh, people like that. Um, you can even detect Tory sensibilities in people like uh, Daniel Webster, who in many ways you can describe him as being a, a liberal, but you begin to see Tory sensibilities coming into some of his rhetoric. Uh, people like Rufus Choate, very famous lawyer, a U.S. senator, a great admirer of Webster, um, who else? James Russell Lowell, a very famous poet, and so on. I'm not just going to rattle off right. names. But you begin to see this sensibility coming in, particularly in the, uh, in the 19th century, as a sort of pushback to some of what they're beginning to detect uh, in the Jacksonian era and beyond. Yeah. So with, with that emphasis, is there a particular region? Well, was it stronger in New England? Because I know New England was a bastion of, of federalism you know, up the Federalist Party and everything, was it stronger there or, you know, does it defy uh, geographical boundaries or is there a way to, to trace that at all? As a general rule, I think Toryism finds more of a home in areas with a deeper sense of history, with older institutions, uh, if you will. And so you can find, um, how do I put this? You're in Alabama. I have to be careful yeah. how I put this. There well, is that's such all right. Go for Southern it. Toryism. Uh, in fact, if you've read um, Russell Kirk's Conservative Mind, right? right? Russell Kirk always described himself as a bohemian Tory. And if you read Conservative Mind, there's, you, know, you can see that he locates, he identifies this Tory mentality in the Southern tradition, you know, he's very much uh, in love with uh, John Randolph of Roanoke, for example, wrote a book right. on Randolph of Roanoke. He sees that, that Tory sensibility with deep roots in the South. And when he discusses people from New England, when he discusses uh, in particular people like John Quincy Adams, uh, James Russell Lowell, he speaks of him uh, to a degree, Nathaniel Hawthorne, people like that. He sees in them ambivalence, meaning they're not fully Tory that you would be able to see on somebody like John Randolph of Roanoke. Ambivalence in the sense of they talk Tory language, but the reality right. is on the other side, they don't seem to be all that critical of emerging modernity. They don't seem right. to be all that critical of the arrival of the Industrial Revolution. In fact, some of these people are getting quite wealthy off of the emerging uh, industrial revolution. So there's a sort of uh, torn nature of New England uh, Toryism. Uh, 
And some of what I'm trying to do, if I give you, if you notice, there's sort of like a theme, geographical theme, developing with what I do, and that is, in a in a way, sort of pushing back at Kirk a little bit, and saying that you can find uh, a Tory tradition in New England letters, and I think it'd be it's valuable to to uncover that because there are things to be learned, and there are some very interesting pieces to read, people to understand in that New England conservative tradition that I think will strengthen that tradition um, in many ways and make it less sectional and more uh, and more national. So it can be found everywhere, but in areas with very deep historic roots, I think, institutional roots. One of my favorite articles or essays uh, written by the Southern agrarian Donald Davidson in his mm-hmm. book, Still Rebels, Still Yankees, I know exactly where you're going. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He talks about this very thing. He, he, you know, because Davidson loved the South. He was a loyal son of the South. But he talked about when he went, when he would go to Vermont, because he, yep. he taught at the Breadloaf School there in the summer, and how looking at Vermont made him, I think the he says, it made me almost want to be from here. <laughs> Yeah, but but he what he loved, though, was that communitarian, decentralized, organic view of society that he found there. You know, if if I could go back to to one period in history, I have about 015 that I would like to visit. But but one of them is I would love to visit or to be a fly on the wall at least when Donald Davidson would visit Robert Frost and they would mm. talk together. I mean, it, cause on one hand you think how in the world could someone from the deep South with loyalties there and someone from new England get along. But, but these two men, they saw society largely the same way. And Frost was a very conservative fellow. You know, when he was asked, I'm trying to remember the context. I think it was late in his life, probably during around the time of Kennedy. You know, what kind of Democrat are you? And he said, I was a Grover Cleveland Democrat. Well, that yes. tells you quite a bit. Of, yes. He couldn't, he was not a, a great admirer of the New Deal. He had that sort of Yankee flintiness, right? That's yes. always the word that's used with Yankees in Northeast, flinty. Um, that he didn't like that, the, the New Deal. The government was starting to do things that communities and families would do in the past and uh, and so on. So I, I doesn't surprise me at all in some ways that Frost and Davidson could sit down and find so much to to agree on. They came from different sections, but from very similar uh, perceptions of the world, very similar philosophical backgrounds. Yes, their their geographic differences were nothing compared to their, if I could say, their metaphysical. Yeah. similarities they saw the world the same way and, and and that's really the type of thing i've i've been looking forward to bringing out you know in in talking with you about this because the organic way of looking at life not as an ideologue but as a human being made in the image of god fallen with original sin but but still, one just one among many others who 
if you look at this world realistically, you're, you're actually capable of doing much more than if you come in with a plan to fix everybody and everything. And that seems like what, what a, a Tory view is. Yeah, taking people where they are and beginning there, you know, understanding the context of, of where they're living, the community, family, and what have you. Very practical in some senses, non-ideological is what I, what I mean by that. Uh, but also honoring that, you know, honoring having a sensitivity and seeing almost a sacredness in that, if you will. Um, and not, not coming in there and trying to tear it down and tinker and engineer and things like that. Dealing with people the way they are rather than the way that you would really like them to be. Um, right. I, think that that's, I think that that's true. Yeah. You, and, you know, you, 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 go ahead. you got me thinking about Davidson now. I have all these things that are going, this <laughs> could go on for about three hours if I'm going to check <laughs> But, you know, Davidson had great admiration for, you know, a, this Yankee farmer. I yes. think if I remember correctly, he speaks of the typical Yankee farmer in Vermont. And it belies, this gets back to this Tory idea of complexity, right? As opposed to the Whig tendency to deal with this very streamlined, simplistic, overly thematic presentation uh, of history. You know, it would be like saying, if you want to understand New England, go to Boston. Or if you want to understand the South, go to Atlanta. I mean, obviously that's not the case. And you can see that being elaborated in something, somebody like Davidson going up to Vermont, which is about as far away a place from, you would think, that Davidson would ever be comfortable. And he goes up there and he finds a second home. Yes. It totally delights in the place. So, you know, and, and th that leads to, you mentioned this, and, and it drew me to John W. Osborne's article in Modern Age from 1984, uh, where he talks about, I mean, I think it's just titled Toryism, it but is. he calls Toryism a way of life, which I think is just a beautiful philosophy. Now, now that can sound scary, if you if you think oh no political ideology has to be a way of life but this is not political ideology though not at all so so you know I, I know we've already covered some of this but when when he calls it a way of life you know differentiate the way of life he's talking about from you know everyone having to to do the equivalent of walking in North Korea in high step as a soldier <laughs> right right. Yeah, it's not a, you don't go and find the Tory Little Red Book, right? That tells you this is, that you live this way, this is exactly the way it is. It's not that. It's a, it's a, a sensitivity, if you will, an attitude of mind, a sort of intuition or almost inclination that is, well, it's everything that we've said so far in some ways. It's very practical. It's taking people where they are. It's understanding um, inst the institutions through which people live, and probably most important, because this pops in mind, uh, pops into my mind as well. There's a joyousness to it. Oh boy, you know, Tories are are not. It, it may go counter to what people think. Are not sort of dour types saying you're living a miserable life. You know, please change it. And right. the world is going is going right down the tubes, and everything is terrible. It's quite the opposite. Tories tend to take a great joy in the place they're in. 
you know, they tend their garden, they enjoy the day, they enjoy the company of friends. Uh, I think of, in fact, I was thinking of it driving in today, uh, Hilaire Belloc. It, I forget where this is, but it's in my mind. And it makes me think of how a Tory would see things, but it, it, one of his poems, wherever the Catholic sun doth shine, there's always laughter and good red wine. Well, you could mm. substitute Tory in there for Catholic, and it would be just as good. It's this sort of attitude of life, of appreciating place, loving place, loving institutions that you grew up with, caring for them, preserving them, passing them on in a Burkean sense almost. Yes. Um, but, but yeah, I guess that's how I describe it. It's, it's very much a sensitivity to, sensitivity to place. It does, it's not a political platform or anything, uh, or anything like that. And it goes for the environment, too, a sensitivity to the environment, a sense of stewardship to the environment, things like that. An right. entirely different sensibility than, you, than you'd find with, say, Wicks or liberals. Well, I was just about to ask. So, so, so for me, really, one of the books that, that's been instrumental for me in changing my outlook, and, and, and my outlook was already changing some, but then when I, when I came to acquire this book, it was, it was thrilling. That's the best way I know how to say it. The Tory view of landscape. Yes. That, that perspective, you know, as a, one who's raised in the South with it granted a, a, a right liberal slash libertarian view of the environment. As I've gotten older, I've come to see there's a lot of problems with that. But I, I did not know outside of Sir Roger Scruton, I did not know of many who I, you know, on, for lack of a better way to put it, and I don't like it to say, but, but our side, essentially, that's the best way I can say it. You know, mm -hmm. pe know people who, who hold to traditional good, good things who take this, but then this book, talks about an entire group of people who love the land. So, so go ahead. It's a marvelous book. I mean, it really, uh, it was a revelation to me. I had, I stumbled upon that uh, relatively recently as well. In fact, not too long before I wrote this article, it was one of the stimuli to, to writing, uh, writing the article because you can sort of imagine it. And I'm, I'm sl being slightly sarcastic here, but you'll get the point that a wig garden everything will be exactly in place, yes. right? Yes. If you go to the Wiggs house and there's a big garden in the back, every flower will be precisely placed, every vegetable, it'll be very, very neat, almost creepy in its neatness. <laughs> and if you go to a Tory garden, typical English garden, it's it's not a mess, but it's, a, it's this bewildering diversity, wonderful diversity of things and yes. colors. It's actually shying away from too much organization in this because too much organization is this sort of inauthentic. It's fake. There's nothing organic about that. It's, it's just a marvelous observation uh, that you see coming out of that book. I love it. Yes. The, the, so, so we live in Huntsville, which uh, Alabama, which is dominant. Well, Athens, which is next to Huntsville, Huntsville is dominant with engineers. So, mm -hmm. you know, so, so uh, there's a lot of precision here. So, in, in, in reading the description that's presented in that book, I, I just think about walking into a place where there is just this uh, almost almost like 
an ordered explosion of <laughs> beauty and goodness and nourishing things that are there in, in, in the midst of ponds and beehives. And, you know, it's all of it like when God gave us creation, you know, it, it was very good and, and something for man to tend, but not something for him to exercise domination over, but stewardship. Exactly. So now one of the things mentioned, and you talk about this uh, in, in your article, and it's mentioned also in, in, in the book we just mentioned, the Troy View of Landscape, but that is a group who is often spoke who's often dealt a poor hand and that is the english romantic poets hmm. you know they are treated at least in a lot of the literature from conservatives as you know liberals quasi totalitarians and and, and granted m many of them started their lives as as radicals but there's also you know quite a few of them wordsworth coleridge Sophie, who, who were, who were very, they were conservative, they were faithful. So, so, so tell us, how can one be both romantic and a Tory? That's a good question. There is sort of a, a division, if you will, on how Tory slash, I, I got to be careful, I'm not too loose in my language. I was going to say Tory slash conservatives and how they look at, how they look at romanticism, because there is some suspicion of it. Right. There is some sure. suspicion of romanticism because romanticism um, seems to put a great deal of emphasis upon the individual, individual creativity, expressing him, him or herself and um, very emotional and passionate as opposed to, OK, calm reason. Let's work our way through this. And so many conservatives will be suspicious of the sort of subjectivism that they can see um, coming out of the romantic movement. Um, but you can, you know, romanticism gave, uh, how do I put this? It, it gave much to conservatism. You can see that in how Wordsworth developed over his life, you know, beginning Coleridge too, you know, they're so enthusiastic about the French Revolution. Towards the ends of their life, the end of their lives, it's much different. They're now beginning to see things more organically. Yes. You know, the relationship of communities and institutions and people and churches and what have you and seeing, thing as a, seeing things as a working whole uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, as opposed to breaking that up into compartments and, uh, and what have you. But, yes, they, you can see a, a conservative or Tory uh, sensibility in – um, in romanticism, you see it definitely in the poetry of somebody like Wordsworth, right? When he's, I'm trying to remember the name of the railroad, but his famous poem where he's talking about the devastation that railroads are making on the English countryside. Right. Expecting it's de deteriorating it essentially and um, tearing down these beautiful landscapes, which are a gift from God and what these railroads are doing. Uh, they're just solely in the interest of money and express, uh, you know, spreading a, a market society that's more interested in developing um, the economy than it is developing a sense of beauty. So, yes, you can see very definitely uh, a, a Tory sensibility 
in uh, in romanticism. But you're right. There's a division within conservative thought about whether romanticism is a period to be celebrated or or criticized. No question. And, and I'm not saying that every romantic poet uh, is a, a, a conservative or a Tory. That, that right. I, 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 certainly not. But 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 those three especially. I mean, it's, w- when I read Wordsworth's ecclesiastical sonnets, mm-hmm. his his sonnet on on what a pastor or a priest should be is for me the highlight. I mean, the best summation that I can think of of what what a priest or a pastor should should look like. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it talks about him taking out his sword and uh, about the, the the bold strength with which he preaches. He he ascends the pulpit, looking you know, appearing somewhat minimal, but he you know he and I'm, I'm not quoting this precisely, but just his his description is wonderful. And that's just one poem. And he has an entire line of of all these sonnets that when you read them, you know this man did not hate the church. Someone could not hate the church who would write so gloriously about her. Yeah, I mean, you see through his and their works an attempt to preserve the good and the beautiful and the true. And they're seeing what's arriving with the Industrial Revolution, with with modernity and to a degree some nationalism and the like. It is not interested in those things uh, and is beginning to erode them. And so they are writing to preserve, you know, the good, the beautiful and the true in Wordsworth in the English countryside. Yeah, absolutely. So oh, right, you can see that in Dana too. I mean, just to bring it back to poor old Richard Henry Dana Sr. I mean, he was a great advocate for romanticism. He was a, an right. exponent of it, but he also understood, as he was writing, that they're taken to excess. Romanticism holds within itself a danger. Yeah. Right. It, this excess, uh, excessive sense of self can actually erode the very things that some romantics are trying to preserve. It yes. becomes sort of a nihilistic come the end. It becomes something meaningless uh, because you become so self-absorbed. And so, you know, he was he was trying to balance those things. Yeah. And, and that, that's part of this mentality is the understanding that you do, you need to balance. You cannot give yourself totally to being reactionary and neither can you be, be uh, one who wants to only move forward. So, the the last thing I want to to talk about, and we actually did not get to. I mean, your your first book, I, I was not able to. I will confess, I was not able to acquire it before we we had the interview. So I, I read some of the reviews on it, which is a is an interesting take, and and I I, I enjoyed it on on the railroads and, and the different perspectives on the railroads in New England. But I I'd, I'd like to hear though about the church. What as Americans we are so accustomed to the division of church and state, we think that that is the great gift that we have bestowed upon modernity. Is we led the way for this, but the Tories did not have precisely the same view. I'm not saying that every Tory is a strict establishmentarian, but you know, what is 
the Tory view towards the church? Well, certainly Anglican high Tories believed in Britain, I'm speaking here now, believed in the necessity of and the ultimate good of having an established church. I mean, they, they understood things as crown and church. Um, they stood uh, understood those things together as being the foundation of English nationality uh, and the foundation of uh, you know, political virtue that it was going to be that it was going to be um, uh, coming from that. But not all Tories, you know, certainly there were Catholic Tories as well. And in the United States, you'll find Tories of every, of many different denominations. And not all of them were necessarily believing in an established church. However, they certainly would have believed in the, in the necessity of religion and its role in creating a virtuous citizenry, that you couldn't have a healthy I'll speak in American terms here, you couldn't have a healthy republic. If you had citizens who were distant from virtue, had no understanding of virtue, or who had uh, a, a blizzard of different ways to think about what virtue actually was. I mean, I think of someone like John Adams, or even John Quincy Adams, too. We don't want to go too far here and turn them into 100% uh, Tories, but you can sense some of that in some of that concern about what a republic would look like if it no longer had the presence of religion in people like the Adams, uh, father and son, and even beyond. You yes, Henry, I about to say Henry Adams also. Henry Adams as well, and Mont Saint-Michel and Charter and things like that. That the Stable republics are built upon a virtuous citizenry. If you don't have a virtuous citizenry, republics fall apart, something else takes their place, some sort of Caesarist regime or something like that. So if you want to maintain the republic, don't end up like what we see in the classical history. You need to have a virtuous citizenry, one of the most important institutions in inculcating that virtue are healthy churches. You know, they weren't saying it has to be the congregational church or it has to be the Episcopal church or something like that. But a virtuous citizenry that had a, a healthy religious culture, if you will, um, yeah, and I should mention, by the way, you made me think of it when you were when you were talking about a, a church establishments. Remember, down into the antebellum period, some states had recognized publicly funded churches. Remember, right. Massachusetts uh, actually had to revise its constitution in the 1820s to disestablish a state church, which is what essentially it was. You see that in other states as well. So on the state level, you did have some establishments. On the federal level, of course, uh, of course not. Right. And uh, I think there was a book, and I cannot think of the name of it right now, but that was on the um, Anglicanism in Virginia in the mm -hmm. pre, uh, just before the revolution, yeah. which was, I mean, it, it presents with warts, but, but in general, a view of life in Virginia that was holistic, where, where you, I mean, you, you had the church was responsible that they, they, they took, yes, tax money went to the church, but they didn't just pay pastors an exorbitant salary and say everybody else just has to deal with life. You know, the church was responsible to be the societal welfare agency. So they were, they took some of that tithe money and they would distribute it to those who had medical needs, 
who had the needs for food and, and things like that. So that so they were responsible for administering a lot of these things that we just attribute to today uh, the national or state governments. Absolutely, the church, all churches really um, have have the biggest social service network in the world. Um, certainly previous to the two governments getting involved with various um, welfare policies and the like, the biggest social service uh, offers in the world. No question. Yes. No question about it. And that idea of this sort of, uh, you use the word, I think, holistic um, sort of seamlessness of it, if you will, this organic, um, this organic vision, it gets back to another Tory theme. And that is, and what we were just talking about with virtue, that the internal and the external have to match, if yes. you will. If you have a virtuous citizenry, meaning internally here, you will have a virtuous republic external. When there is a mismatch between the two, you can't compartmentalize them, right? Because they won't be, you won't survive. They won't be healthy. There has to be a match between the internal and the external. A virtuous citizenry means a virtuous public sphere, and having healthy churches was key to that, you know, key to that health, that social health. And you hear Tories emphasizing that all the time. Yes. Well, Dr. Connolly, I really appreciate you taking time to talk today. This has been a subject that I frankly don't know of many people that I can talk about this with. Uh, we just scratched the surface. There's so much more to talk about. There, there is. That Well, you know, so after your, you, I know you have another book coming out uh, in time, which will uh, likely deal with some of the, hopefully some of the things that we've, we've discussed. Uh, I'll give you a 30 on. second preview of coming attractions. Oh, please do. That's great. So it's related, but not directly. So the book is about Jacobitism uh, in late 19th century and early 20th century, United Kingdom and the United States. Oh, man. So, there was a resurgent Jacobite movement around the time of late Victorian England and the United States. And these uh, Jacobites considered themselves to be Tory revolutionaries. And so it discusses that in, uh, on both sides of, uh, of the Atlantic. So the heroes are Ralph Adams Cram, who was the most famous architect in the country at the time, and a little known Canadian Anglican priest, Named Robert Thomas Nickel. There you go. That's my tease. Okay. Well, that's a good tease. I've, I've been fascinated <laughs> with the Jacobites for, mm, I'd say, going on seven years now. So, so this that will be great. And I hope when that comes out, we can talk to you again about what's in this book. Have me back. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I hope everything goes well and look forward to reading that book. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. All right. Appreciate it.